Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today I'm going to be sharing the audio from the talk that I gave last year at Arcadia. Arcadia is a music festival that is um, at Area 15 in Las Vegas, Nevada. And last year was our first year hosting this event. And I actually helped create and put it together. More the idea, not the actual creation of the event, because I didn't know how to do that. But um, I want to share this talk for two reasons. One, I want to bring y'all's attention to Arcadia this year. But two, I think this is maybe the most important talk that I have recorded that I'm aware of. And what I mean by that is it has, it's the most densely packed talk that I've given with some of the core themes and beliefs that feel like they're almost like the fabric of the tapestry of my soul. I talk about what I think gods actually are. I talk about how gods interact with the psyche. And I introduce what I think is the new metaphor for psychology and for our minds and how to use that metaphor to start to heal the realm of the gods, the zeitgeist. And that I really think that that's one of the most important things that we can do in our age. And I think that that's one of the functions of artists. What I want to speak about before we get into that is just real quickly, um, Arcadia is an idea that is massively mythopoetically important to me. And I can feel that I haven't really had the opportunity to articulate why it is. And the truth is, I don't think many people would even get what the fuck I'm about to try to explain. But of the people that I can speak to, you guys, the people who listen to my podcast, I think are the people that I have the highest likelihood to get to understand how I see this. So I'm going to try to keep this short because this is my like fifth time trying to record this intro. And when I get to this part, I start to spin out. Um, it's a psychological fact that in order for our psyches to generate meaning over time, we have to have a vision of the future that we feel we are making progress towards creating. Most people do not have a conscious vision of the future. And that's a huge reason why there's so much depression and anxiety in our world. Then there's a group of people that do have a vision for the future, but it's not a singular, coherent, inspiring vision. It's more of a um, mostly unconscious, some unconscious or some conscious cloud of contradictory futures that were kind of confusingly moving towards multiple at the same time. And that can lead to us feeling incredibly stressed and burnt out. You know, it'd be like, you have the ideal future of um, becoming the, you know, CEO of the company that you work at. But then you also have the potential future of being the type of calm, relaxed, spiritual person that you want to be who spends a lot of time by the water. And then you have the potential future of being the husband and the father and the friend that you want to be. And then you have the idiosyncratic future of the wild artist that you want to be that like goes and travels the world and isn't tied to anybody, blah, blah, blah. Most of us have many different futures that we're playing with. But most of us haven't challenged how small our futures actually are to ourselves. And we haven't dreamed as big as we could dream into the future that we would want to create. Without going down rabbit holes, I think one of the most important things that an individual can do is to dream up the most beautiful and challenging multi-generational project that is their quote-unquote kingdom of heaven. And long story short, my process through this for the last two and a half years is I've come to the realization that I want to help create a city of the future. This isn't something that I chose consciously. It's something that has dripped through me through multiple um, visionary experiences. And I'm like, what the fuck do I know about trying to create a city? But that's the thing that has come through really clearly is help create a regenerative city. 
um, Arcadia is a representation. So Arcadia actually comes from an ancient Greek city and that there's a myth connected to that, you know, to Arcadia. But what I'm interested in trying to get people to do is to imagine their specific kingdom of heaven, which is a city. And to imagine like every city has a horizon. Joseph Campbell has a quote that you will know what a culture worships by looking at its tallest buildings on its horizon. What I imagine is that one of the most potent things that we can do for ourselves is to imagine the kingdom of heaven that is our future that we want to help create and then to think about. If I got to place a building on the horizon of the city of the future, what would I create? What would I create if I knew that it would take multiple generations of artists to create, but that I could start laying the first bricks now? What would I make? If I got to revolutionize some aspect of our culture that would be represented by that building and I had to give my life to it and that I knew that I would be kind of the seed that would feed the next few generations of artists to create this building, what would it be? There's this idea called cathedral consciousness and the idea is to begin the work on a project that will take multiple generations for you to complete because the average cathedral took over 300 years to make. What would you do? What I see, I see Arcadia symbolically as the horizon of the city of the future. And each of us has a specific offering that we could begin to work on that would be a multi-generational project that could help create some new aspect of culture that is represented as a building on the horizon of this city. The one that comes through for me is a hospital, the hospital of the future. And I've had a vision about what it looks like and the thing that I can feel is symbolically and maybe literally my entire life is going to be the slow brick by brick lane of the foundations of at least the audacity of the belief that this type of hospital can exist, that these type of doctors can exist, that these type of patients can exist, that these types of operations and procedures and techniques can be used and that they can work. And I'm going to give my whole life to that. And then kind of the vision that I have is that Arcadia is a yearly touch point for people who are, who are putting their skin in the game to imagine a structure on the horizon of the city of the future and is willing to start a multi-generational project to help create it and that they want to hang out with other people who have chosen to live their life that way. Because it's an entirely different way of living your life. If you play this type of game, you're playing an infinite game. You're not trying to maximize your results in this lifetime. The most important thing in your life is not yourself anymore. The most important thing in your life is not your status or your power or your wealth. The most important thing in your life is to create the conditions required for an echo to go through multiple generations for this beautiful public work to be created for humanity. It's an entirely different way of looking at reality. And the thing about festivals is that they are psychotechnologies that have grown out of culture to help the people in the culture who are ready to transform from one worldview to another. Festivals help people transition from one worldview to another. Most people live in a finite worldview. 
and in a finite worldview, you compete, you attack, you defend, death is the end, and all of the games that we play are pseudo attempts to make us immortal because we're afraid of death. The finite game is the game that's eating the planet. It's the game that's trying to infinitely grow, which is counterintuitive, but the reason they're trying to infinitely grow is because they don't believe that if they stopped that they would be okay. The infinite game is a different worldview. It's a worldview that doesn't see yourself as an isolated individual entity. It doesn't see yourself as the player of a game that needs to beat other people. The infinite game is a game that sees, I'm not competing with anybody. I'm trying to play in a way that allows the game to continue. And if you look at our horizons right now, our horizons confess that we have no infinite players who are creating structures. Because all of the buildings on all of the horizons and all of the cities in our country, they were built in less than one generation. They were built at most, you know, within 10 or 20 or 30 years so that we could get our profits, so we could get, so we could get, period. And the thing about a festival is that it helps the transition between one worldview to the next. And um, I'm using Arcadia as a yearly way to help me remember what the fuck am I doing here? It's not to maximize how much money I make. It's not to have the highest status. It's not to fuck the most people or to have the most followers or the most fame. The reason I am here and the reason I strive and the reason that I work and the reason that I share my art is because I want to create cathedrals and not for my name. They can forget who I am. The truth is I'm working as hard as I work because I have a intuition that the world that my children are going to have to navigate is going to be so much harder and weirder than the world that I did and that I was woefully ill-equipped to deal with the world that I was born into. And I had to suffer tremendously to start to find my balance. And as a parent, I want to give them the best possible place to start from to navigate this world. And so the cathedral consciousness, you know, the infinite game, it's so I can help them and their children's children. And so, um, I have rambled a bit and I appreciate you guys allowing me to ramble in this, in these brambles of words. Um, this is really important to me. And it's also something that's still new enough for me that I don't quite know how to articulate, but I tried to here and I will continue to try to. Uh, so check out this talk that I gave. I was a bit nervous at the beginning. You will probably be able to tell, but I find my groove. And uh, if you're interested, I'll go to Fit for Service and check out Arcadia and come dance with me and come imagine what building on the horizon of the city of the future you would want to help create. And we can talk about it. Uh, a cheat code for anyone. If you want me to respond to something like to an email or uh, if you want to, if you want me to actually want to talk to you in person, if you see me. Talk to me about this. This is what I want to talk about. What building on the horizon of the city of the future do you want to help build and why? And what are you doing to do it? Because that's what I fucking care about. We can also talk about dreams and puns and sports and shit, but you get it. All of these podcasts are brought to you by my courses that you can check out on my website. Um... It takes money to run these podcasts and most people have chosen to uh, do ads and there's just something in me that I don't want to do ads. I don't want to uh, try to pitch you on why the 
you know, new socks I have are the socks that you need to buy. I'm open to like, if someone has a product and I actually want you guys to know about it, um, I might do an ad, but I do not want to depend on ads. So if you want to help support this podcast, go check out my courses. And if you've already taken my courses, but you still want to support the podcast, gift the course to a friend and um, do it ethically, aka don't give them your login, but buy one for them off of their email and they'll get it. And I think that's a really cool way to um, help support this podcast. I don't need the money, but I would like for it to not just cost me money to uh, make these. So without further ado, thank you for your time and your attention. Uh, this is one of the most meaningful podcasts that I've done um, this episode that you're about to hear. So I'd love to hear any feedback that you guys have. Uh, email me and big love. Thank you. So good to see everybody. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for coming on this last day after the last three days. Uh, I imagine if you guys are even half as tired as we are, you guys are warriors. So thank you. So I didn't plan for my talk on purpose because I wanted to listen. And that's one of the things that I've learned the most from working with Aubrey. Before I started, uh, you know, working with them, the way that I tried to approach life was, uh, I don't want to admit to myself how afraid I am to be judged at failing at things that I care about. So I'm going to plan and plan and plan and plan and never do. And then once I started to work for Aubrey, I was like, fuck, this dude just goes and does it. And I hope that that can be an example to any of you when it comes to whatever the thing is that you want to do. Uh, it's better to try and quote unquote fail than plan and plan and plan and plan and plan and never do. Through my listening, the things that I'm going to try to connect into a story, and I have no idea how this is going to go, is the idea of regenerative psychology and then also the idea of the daemon and dharma so let's see how this goes um i think gods are real but lowercase g gods i think that there's a thing that you can't give a word to and anyone that tries to give a word to it that thinks that they're talking about capital g they're talking about lowercase g's and we're familiar with things like Zeus and Odin and Thor, Yahweh, Allah, whatever the Mormons were doing, no offense. But we also don't recognize that some of the gods of our times are capitalism, communism, libertarianism, conservatism, liberalism. If it has an ism, I see it as one of these lowercase g gods. I see that these gods, they live in, uh, the German word for it is the zeitgeist. And the zeitgeist is the spirit of the times. Another way to think about it is the word culture. I see there's almost like two landscapes. There's the biological landscape, and Kyle talked about that. But there's also this imaginal landscape, this cultural landscape. And the flora and the fauna and the organisms that evolve in that cultural landscape are ideas. And just like organisms compete in the physical environment, and they evolve, they try to get resources, claim territory. I think ideas do that too. And the territory is your prefrontal cortex, humans, minds, 
or the environment that these organisms compete for. And I don't see them as aliens or ghosts or any of that thing. I see them as a natural byproduct of acquiring language and symbol making. In the same way that the mystery at the core of religions are unspeakable, but then people who don't want to contend with the mystery create belief systems, which are not the same as religions. Belief systems are these static, finite structures to try to keep out the mystery. And that's actually one of the many ways that we try to make meaning out of things that we don't understand, because I don't know why it's doing that. These gods compete. Really what they want to do is they want to evolve, just like any organism wants to. But because the property that they compete for is ours, is us and our nervous system and our minds, they have to deal with our evolved emotions. And our evolved emotions when we are afraid or when we are triggered is we default to fighting and war. Who here is familiar with existential risk theory? Oh, I'm going to bum some people out. Okay. <laughs> so when gods clash and it produces conflict, just like when organisms fight and it produces conflict, for most of, for all of our evolutionary history, uh, we hadn't developed tools of conflict that were powerful enough to end the game of evolving. We have now entered into an age where we have acquired the tools to end all games for gods and humans to evolve. The moment Oppenheimer saw the atomic bomb explode, it changed the game. Now that we have nuclear warheads, now that we have the tools of extraction to cause ecological collapse, now that we have governments competing to try to acquire weaponized artificial intelligence systems to use drones, and that we also have governments competing for trying to use gene editing software to be able to make bioweapons, these are the four major tools that the competition between gods as they live inside of the prefrontal cortex of humans We've gotten to a point where if we keep choosing conflict, when two gods rub up against each other, we might end the whole game that humans have been trying to play. And the reason I bring this up is that I think it's time for a new metaphor when it comes to conflict. I really do not resonate with the war metaphor when even us as an in-group talk about whatever it is out there that we're trying to win against or campaign against or even the idea of a revolution in most people's minds. Whether or not they can connect to it, they think of something like the French Revolution. They think of violence on, on some level. And I think the new metaphor is what Kyle was talking about. Regenerative agriculture. Who here has seen the biggest little farm? I think the biggest little farm is the most potent mythopoetic metaphor for how to integrate gods. I hope you guys will rewatch it after I try to give this breakdown, but they buy a piece of land and the soil is ruined and nothing is growing there. The default expectation for what to do with that land is to monocrop the fuck out of it, put up your walls, buy your fertilizer, 
just extract and exploit and try to produce as much as you possibly can and then sell it to the masses. But because they had access to a uh, crazy wisdom mentor, this mentor taught them how to revitalize this land. And the first thing that they had to do was they had to heal the soil by putting shit and piss back into it. And then once they started to get the soil going, they were able to bring in the first wave of plants and animals. And once they started to set, predators came in, either fungi or insect or animal predators. And their first response to those incoming predators was to try to do something to kill them or to remove them. But what their mentor taught them is now that you've created level one, you start to bring in more diversity. And then instead of attacking, you add something intelligently that starts to create a new equilibrium with the new thing that you just brought in. If I knew I was going to talk about this before today, I would have rewatched it so I could give you the exact examples. But let this be an invitation for you to go watch that documentary again. But so what they do is you create equilibrium that creates life. It draws in new creatures. And then that becomes an invitation to add a new thing to it until you get to a point where there's tens of thousands of animals and insects and plants. And it's a thriving ecosystem that moves from something that needs to be stewarded by humans to eventually getting to a place where it's doing its own infinite game, where the humans could disappear and the, and the regenerative aspect of the land starts to take care of itself. I think we have in each of us an internal landscape and the animals and the plants and the fauna are the ideas that we interact with. Most people we know who identify with an ism are monocropping their inner landscape. The invitation to anyone here who wants to be a part of the next generation of how ideas interact with each other, the invitation is for you to cultivate inside of you a regenerative ecosystem for ideas. So if you only identify with the left, you're monocropping, baby. If you only identify with the right, you're monocropping. One of the things that I'm most passionate about is how do we integrate all of the different gods that are alive in our time and see what they do when they can find equilibrium with each other. But to, the, but to that point, you also got to know what weeds to pull, where to have realistic boundaries. Like one of the beautiful things about the biggest little farm is they get to a point where they start to have a coyote problem. And, they're try and their mentor has passed by this point. So now they're trying to put the external mentor inside of themselves and they're trying to figure out how do we deal with the coyotes and um the husband of the two shoots one and kills one and he's going through this inner turmoil about whether or not the mentor that they loved would have agreed with what he had done and this is something that i think is a obstacle that each of us will have to try to navigate when it comes to sometimes there are ideas that actually you can't homeostasis them out. Like we've evolved to have anger and anger when integrated is our boundary. You know, like if Aubrey talks about this often and it really resonates with me. And it's, if a man breaks into my home and is trying to attack my children or my wife, I can both see that I could be him if I grew up with the same environment and 
genetics that he has and I can put him on the ground and if I need to, I can kill him. And so there is a place for integrated anger. You know, and there's this idea in English common law, minimal necessary force as well. And so when we go back out, you're going to meet people who have monocropped inner soil. And it's almost like they're not going to be able to contend or deal with the ideas and the shimmer that you'll be bringing back. Uh, who here has seen, I think it's called Dr. Sleep, but it's the um, book after The Shining. The ideas that young people with the gift have the shimmer and these eternal vampiric style entities seek them out and try to, you know, extract their shimmer. Uh, you're going to meet people that feel like that. And there is a model that I want to offer to everyone when to actually try to give you some pragmatic and practical tools that you can use to cultivate your inner garden. And um, when it comes to speaking to people that you don't agree with, when it comes to commenting on someone's post on, so on social media, um, who here has seen a post on social media and got triggered by it and then went in the comments and said some shit that you would never say in person ever? I invite you to be honest and brave. 30% of you are aligned, and I appreciate the 10% who, who rose their hand. What's more common is who here has seen a post on Instagram or Twitter that was someone on one of the side of the monocrop explicitly mocking or attacking or name-calling someone on the other side, and you reposted it as a story or as a post on your Instagram or Twitter? Raise your hand. 50% of you are lying, and the 20% who raised your hands, I really appreciate that. The place where our gods are competing most often right now are on social medias. And how we use our social media is literally how we're in real time gardening our inner garden, where all of the gods are living and trying to find their place. And so I'm going to offer a practical game that you guys can play once you leave here and you go out into the world. Um, the first one is straw manning. Straw manning is a ancient philosophical rhetorical technique where when you're arguing with someone and you don't agree with them, you misrepresent their argument in the most dismissive, derogatory, mocking fashion. You attack and destroy that and then use that as evidence that you've actually dismissed their idea. Everyone here does this. It seems to be just so deeply embedded in how we, how gods fight. And it gets us nowhere. It, it actually moves us closer to conflict and war. It deepens the ruptures in the social fabric. It creates more pain in people and it keeps us from ever actually growing or learning or adding any type of biodiversity to our inner landscape. I just want you guys to know what straw manning is so that you can catch yourself when you do it because we all do it. The next level of inner regenerative God tending would be steel manning. Who here has heard of the term steel manning? Cool. Steel manning is a modern um, name given to a very old philosophical idea that's called the principle of charity. And steel manning slash the principle of charity is to assume the person who I do not agree with, 
the person who I'm having this debate or this argument with, they're fundamentally a good person. They care about their family. They care about the well-being of their children and their children's children. They're trying to get it right. And they know something that I don't know. And if I'm willing to listen to them, I might learn something that can help me help my children and my children's children if I was willing to actually contend with their idea. And from a regenerative inner God-tending landscape, that would be you actually allow that organism into your garden. And so what steel manning looks like is fundamentally, you got to ask questions. If you meet an idea that you don't agree with and you begin with telling them either what you believe or why they're wrong, you have already shown that you're not steel manning. Because the truth is, you've lived with yourself your whole life and you don't know who the fuck you are or what you actually think. And so when you're arguing with someone and you assume you know their position, just feel into the absolute impossible arrogance of that. You don't. But what you could do is ask some fucking questions. Genuinely. Like, what is it that you actually believe about this piece and this piece and this piece? You know that you've steel manned when you can say their position back to them and they agree with you that you got it right. Who here has had a debate or a disagreement with someone where they said back the other person's position and the other person told them, you understand what I'm saying? Whoa, cool. The few times that I've done this in my life, they almost begin to cry. I remember a very vivid story when I was in college and um, I was the philosopher stoner of the friend group. <laughs> and we would go in my garage every night, like five or six of us, and we would smoke weed and we would just talk about whatever. One of the nights, one of my roommates friends came over and she brought her boyfriend who was a veteran and you know we were smoking weed and we were talking about all the things and he and I got on like war and guns and this was back when I was embarrassingly monocropped left-winged and um, before I even knew what he thought I knew that I disagreed with him but I could also feel how he was like on the verge of crying even as we began to talk about it. And I think that he could feel that, you know, uh, my mind was a bit quicker than his and he was probably worried that maybe he would be embarrassed. And it softened me in a way where I actually just started to ask him like what he really thought, what brought him to the military, why did he believe what he believed. And we got to a point where and I had never done this before, it just kind of organically came about. I was like, so is this how you see it? And I laid it out and he started to cry. And he said, yes. And I started to cry and I didn't even know why I was crying. I think it was because this man that was such, you know, it's like when we see Kyle cry, it's like, this man could kill me. And he's crying in a way that like, opens my heart and for some reason the fact that he can kills kill me opens my heart more and i don't really get that but that's what i felt from this man and it has stuck with me for a long time and so i invite you guys that whenever especially when you're talking with your family like most of you are going to have someone in your family that when you leave this and go back to them, they're going to be ready to attack you with their gods about why what you just did was either weird or wrong. <laughs> We've been doing this game enough to know that this is one of the main things that people come back to us after these events and be like, how do we do this? Steel man in. 
instead of going directly into defending yourself or attacking them for like, you don't see me and I just have to have this boundary and I won't talk to you for six months because I read a book about making boundaries. I'm just going to cut you off. What you could do is just from a place of non-reactivity, really, just like Aubrey was talking about with Arcadia, get inside of their reality tunnel, get inside of their story by asking genuine questions so you can explore every nook and cranny about why they believe what they believe instead of just going straight for the jugular and be like, you're terrified of intimacy. And what I do makes you feel uncomfortable. And when you're ready to dance and hug, I'll be here with open arms. <laughs> Maybe don't do that. I've tried it, it doesn't work. The third level the highest level of this type of regenerative God tending is what I'm playing with calling heart manning. And heart manning is where you steal man to the depth where you're able to connect to what, what is the grief in the other person that they are defending with their gods and their stories and not as a tool to use to manipulate them, but to be in it with them where tears are coming down your face as you're speaking to your mother or your father about this experience because you can connect to their terror of being judged or their terror of losing themselves and the collective or the fact that their mother, who has already passed, but the, the image of their mother is still so strong in their mind that they've never gone for their dreams. And to even begin to hope is actually more painful than to just slowly die. I have someone in my family that that is their story. That the idea of hope is so much more painful than them just being like, I'm just going to slowly die for the next eight years. And just to be with them. Because fundamentally, what I feel is at the core of most of our disagreements is we have grief that has not been witnessed by the people closest to us, that if it was witnessed by them, we would all be closer together. There's a, I'll share a story. Damn, I only have two minutes. Whoa, okay. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit over because Kyle did, right? All right. Okay. So I'm going to share a personal story and then we're going to get weird with a mythic thing. Um, for the last... So I got into this self-help, uh, really I got into the idea of, oh my God, I'm more than just a cog in a machine uh, about 12 years ago. And as I started to learn about how to change my diet and how to journal and how to like how good going on walks are and getting in the sun and all that shit, every time I would talk to my mom, I would try to give her these tools that I thought would help make her life better. And she interpreted my advice giving as me judging her. And it got to the point where after about a year and a half, she would stop calling me. And I eventually found out that like she told me and she said, it doesn't feel good when I talk to you on the phone because I just feel like I'm doing everything wrong. And uh, that was heartbreaking. That wasn't yet heartbreaking. I'll get to the heartbreak part. She came to visit uh, when I was still in college and we went out to dinner and uh, we got, to, my mom's very philosophical. She's very intelligent. She loves to read and she loves to play with ideas. And we got to the point where she was basically like, so you're telling me 
that everything that's wrong in my life is my fault. And um, I said yes. And I could see that saying yes, that was the thing that I said that hurt my mother more than anything that I've ever said or ever done to her. Her, she went straight to crying. We were in a public restaurant. I could feel, it was almost like I had like punched her in the stomach. She got up and she went outside and it took, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes until she eventually came back inside. And she apologized for how she reacted and I apologized for saying that, but every year when I would visit for Christmas, we would somehow find ourselves back in that place where she would be like, you think you're fucking better than me. You think that... She basically was holding on to that one moment that she used as uh, proof that her son thought that she was a piece of shit. And I would always fight with her when we would get to that point and be like, no, no, I, I don't fucking think that. And we get into like these shouting matches. This past Christmas, we got back to that spot, just like every year, you know, this is our favorite song. And because of doing the things that I have been doing at Fit for Service, I have taught my nervous system how to be clear and calm when it's super activated. I think that's one of the best gifts. One of the things that Fit for Service does, or just any event like this, is you get to practice being in a fully charged nervous system and still have to have your fucking wits about you and doing the sweat lodges and the ecstatic dances and the breath work and the weird tribal games that we did and the fucking Spartan runs that we do. I could feel that for the first time I was able to be in the full triggered boy of the mother who's disappointed in you, who is weeping and yelling. And that my response to that my entire life was to fight or to freeze and to run. I was able to stand in her grief and her pain. And I was able to track in my mind. I had the whole philosophical argument about why she was wrong right here. And I wanted to click it. And I had this moment where it was like, I'm going to try this thing. And what I did is I dropped into her grief with her. My eyes started to water. I looked her in the eyes and I said, sorry. And it was the first, I noticed it was the first time that I had just said sorry instead of defend myself. And my mom, her whole energy changed. And we went on to have a great conversation and I was able to notice in hindsight my resistance to her was to drop into the frequency of her grief. And all of my arguments and all of my words was to avoid being in the frequency of the grief of the person in front of me. And I think most of our cultural war dialogue is between two people with grief about something and the unwillingness of the other person to drop into their grief. Because 99.99% .99 of the cultural war discussions are happening by people who aren't, who don't even have the technical skills to do anything about the thing that they're arguing about. It's like, if your partner is yelling about the dishes, it's almost never about the dishes. And that's what I see is happening. Like most of the people that I know don't do a goddamn thing in politics. And the ones who talk about it the most clearly have some part of their dharma that they're not yet pursuing. And they use political arguments or conspiracy theories to protect themselves from trying. Okay, I'm going to end with a myth. <clears throat> I've been trying to contend with the feeling that we're in 
a cultural war. And I told you I don't like the war metaphor, but it also feels naive not to use it if it's the one that best applies to what's happening. And I like to think in mythological terms, it's almost like in order for my brain to remember things, I have to imagine them like a seven-year-old would imagine like, there's a castle over there and there's a bear in the woods and there's a dragon. And I use those as like inner landmarks for big ideas that I like to try to travel with. And I have this vision of this like huge Titan, like the father of the gods. And it's like his body is the, is the whole landscape of the continent. And there's like a broken down castle in his ribs. And that's where all of his sons and daughters, the gods of our time, are gathered around a table. And they're all fighting with each other about who father was worse to. Every, every one of us, when we think about this Titan, somewhere in our history, we were one of the tribes that this Titan conquered. Just some of us have been integrated into the body of this Titan longer. And it's like the newest, the youngest sons and daughters of this Titan's conquest, they're at the table trying to express their grief. And the older sons and daughters don't want to hear it. And it's like we're not allowing we're in his ribs screaming about who dad abused more. That's at least what it feels like to me on a mythical level. And I think that the only way that we're going to figure out what to do with the body and the landscape and the good ideas that this Titan is leaving behind is someone is going to have to step to the table and help people begin to process and share their grief. And so my invitation to all of you is to play the game of trying to tend to the inner garden in your heart and to allow new gods in and see what type of beautiful landscape that you can make through steel manning and heart manning and please to take responsible that your speech, your conversations, your communication, everything you write and repost and share online is contributing to the soil of the zeitgeist. You are responsible and we can do it. And the beautiful thing about, the beautiful thing about life and what Kyle's talk shows explicitly is if you give it the container and the ingredients, the magic occupies it and it grows. Like we don't know how to grow things. We know how to set the container for the mystery to come through it and make life. Like we don't heal our own cuts. We don't know how the fuck that works. We have the symbols that we can apply to it and we, and we can put it on a test and you can pass the test and we can give you a title but we don't actually know. And so the invitation is to garden your inner zeitgeist. Thank you.